from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the Centre for European Reform podcast. Today we're going to be talking about a paper that I've written with Jonathan Portes, who's with us. Jonathan is Professor of Economics and Public Policy at King's College London and a senior fellow at our Rivals and Friends UK and a Changing Europe. Welcome, Jonathan. Good morning. So the paper is called, we put it out this week, Early Impacts of the Post-Brexit Migration System on the UK Labour Market, which is perhaps a little bit of a mouthful. But the, the genesis of the project was, Jonathan has been doing this excellent work showing that the new immigration system that was put in after the end of free movement is actually relatively liberal. Immediately after the referendum, when we kind of suspected that free movement was going to end. Everyone was worried that this was going to mean a big closure of the UK labour market to immigrants. And that was obviously going to cause some economic change. And obviously ending free movement uh, means that the UK labour market is more closed to EU migrants. So Jonathan and I wanted to see what the end result was. We've got a kind of relative opening to non-EU people and a relative closing to EU people. So What's the outcome? And just to get the answer out of our way, because I think in some ways the methods and what it means in terms of policy is a bit more interesting. But our estimate says that against our counterfactual, there's a shortfall of about 460,000 EU workers because of the end of free movement. And then against our counterfactual, again, there's 130,000 more workers from non EU countries as a result of the opening of the immigration system to then. So, so the overall, the net shortfall is about 330,000. And I should say this is in the year to June 2022, which was the last month for which we have data. So, you know, th those are our estimates. 330,000 is quite a lot. That's about 1% of the overall labour force. And Jonathan, perhaps you could start by telling us what, what's the difference between the old immigration system for non-EU people And the new system, which covers all people equally from both the EU and outside it, what does the change in that migration system mean for the economy? Well, the, the new migration system is, for most workers, it's basically a salary and skill threshold. And the bottom line is that if an employer wants to hire someone in a job that pays more than about 25 grand a year, it's a bit higher for some uh, occupations, a bit lower for others to reflect the sort of the, the going rate. and It has a skill level above what we call RQF3, which you can think of as being sort of two A levels above, which crucially doesn't, for example, include HGV drivers or most care workers. They'll come back to that in a minute, but does include really quite large swathes of the workforce, It includes sort of pretty much everybody who works in a university or think tank, for example, even relatively junior research staff, and even sort of relatively middle, you know, middle management in, in most sectors. And My estimates and those of others suggest that it probably covers significantly in excess of half the UK workforce. So, you know, half of all jobs out there, probably more, are open for an employer to hire somebody from anywhere in the world if they're willing to 
fill in a few forms and pay quite hefty visa fees, which, you know, so these are not trivial obstacles, but in principle, that makes the system quite open. And then the other big change that's uh, happened at the same time is around the health and care sector, where there's a sort of special visa for people working in the NHS, again, at these sort of middle and upper skill levels, but also, and this is even more, you know, crucial to people working in the social care sector, even at the most, the lowest skilled level. So even just a, a sort of starting out care worker at the bottom of the scale, all of these jobs, you can get visas on a slightly, you know, for, for let the, the fees are lower and the process is quicker. So in the health sector, it's it's particularly open. And of course, we're seeing very, very high demand and, and very, very significant inflows in, in that sector. So there are lots of other, as, as always with immigration, it's very complicated. There are lots of other bells and whistles. But to, to my mind, the sort of bottom line is that in, in principle, this system, while it's expensive and sometimes bureaucratic, does cover a very, very large proportion of the workforce. And crucially, and again, and this differs with most other countries, there is no resident labour market test. That is to say, you don't have to show that you can't get a Brit or a, a UK resident to do the job. You can simply offer it to the, to the person uh, anywhere in the world if the job itself and the salary meet the relevant criteria. Okay, great. And so as a result of that kind of relative opening of the system to non-EU workers, then again, we, we think that to June 2022, that means that we've got about 130,000 more workers. So it's worth just saying a bit about our methods, which I will do very briefly because some people might find it boring. But I think we ought to talk about it because we also need to talk a bit about how confident we can be in our estimates, I guess. And so the way that the method that we that we put together works is we look at people in employment in Britain using the annual population survey, which is a massive survey of UK households. And we look at the number of people who are in employment who were born in the UK, who were born in the EU and who were born in the rest of the world. And then we calculate the growth rates of those three groups in terms of their employment, calculate growth rate of employment between 2014 and 2019. And that gives us a, a general sense of, on average, how much of these employment groups growing before the pandemic and the end of free movement. And you could do a super crude way of constructing a counterfactual, which is simply to project those growth rates forward for EU, for example, and then compare to what the outturn was. But obviously, there's lots of other things that have happened. There's the pandemic, there's, well, the pandemic is probably the big one. And so to try and make it a bit less crude, we try to account for labour demand. And obviously, the pandemic in the initial stages, because we closed down the economy, meant that there's a big fall in employers demand for workers and then and then when the economy reopens then there was a really rapid rise again and so we try and adjust our counterfactuals for EU and non-EU employment by looking at what happened to UK employment did that fall and if so then we should probably adjust down EU and non-EU employment as, as well in our counterfactual, rather than just projecting the growth rates before the pandemic forward. And so the way we do that is, say, during the pandemic, if UK employment fell by 1%, then we adjust the growth rate of EU and non-EU workers, which we'd calculated between 2014 and 2019, down by one percentage point. And that helps us to, to account a bit for labour demand. But obviously, there are other things going on. And Jonathan, we, we say in the paper that this is a fairly crude methods. What are the things that we can't account for using this method? And, and how confident do you think we can be in our estimates? Well, I think that there are some things that, that I think it, it's just very difficult to conceptually account for. So for example, there was a significant exodus 
of EU workers, we're not quite sure how many, during the pandemic, people who went home for the obvious reasons. We know that, or we're not quite sure how large it was. But if somebody went home because of the pandemic, but then after the pandemic, their job reappeared, would they have come back to the UK absent Brexit and the new system? Well, we just don't know. And, you know, it's it's not even clear that's a meaningful question, right? The combined effect of the pandemic and Brexit means that that person is no longer here when they probably otherwise would have been. But is that a pandemic effect, a Brexit effect, or both? Well, you know, the, the question is really hard to answer. So I think to some extent, there are some pandemic impacts almost inevitably in here. But nonetheless, I think it's still a sort of useful counterfactual to say that, you know, this, this is what's happened. And clearly, Brexit and the introduction of the new system are a major part of that. And you can see that in the fact that these trends are so, in particular sectors, are very clearly different between the three groups of workers, UK, EU, and non-EU. And they are very different in precisely the way that we would have expected, Mm -hmm. given the way the system is designed and given what the changes are compared to the earlier system. You know, what would you expect to see? Well, you would expect to see precisely what we do, in fact, see, which is there are significantly fewer EU workers here than there otherwise would have been and somewhat more non-EU workers. That's what the, the change in the system would have been expected to produce. So I think we can be reasonably confident that we are picking up a genuine set of impacts around the new system, even if the numbers of themselves are, I think you shouldn't put too much weight on them. The other point to mention, of course, is that while the APS is indeed a very large survey and it in itself is quite statistically reliable, the pandemic did disrupt data collection. And so uh, certainly during the period of the pandemic, some of this data isn't entirely uh, reliable. And just to say very briefly about, as Jonathan says, it kind of works as expected. And we did these counterfactual exercises for different sectors of the economy. So, you know, finance and manufacturing and so forth. And we found that the losses of EU workers were really concentrated in less skilled sectors, which, you know, gave us some confidence that this kind of method works to a certain extent. And, you know, some of the, some of the impacts in some sectors are really quite big. So, you know, transportation and storage, a shortfall of EU workers of about 128,000 people, which is about 8% of the total employment in that sector. Wholesale and retail about 103,000, accommodation, hospitality, 67,000, manufacturing, 47,000. So these are the sectors where we saw quite a lot of workers coming in during the 2010s, often from Central and Eastern Europe, but also from Southern Europe after the Euro crisis. So it kind of makes sense that they're the ones that are most likely to suffer the losses for, for the end of free movement. Okay, so that's kind of the paper. Let's talk a bit about the implications, because I think Jonathan and I slightly disagree on this, which might be interesting. So Jonathan, in the FT, you said that the consequences of the new migration system and the end of free movement are going to be profound, and there will be costs and benefits. Do go and read the FT write-up of our piece, by the way. There's some interesting discussion from some employer groups about what are what the implications of our of our numbers are. Jonathan, could, do you think you could just talk us through what you think the costs might be of this change to the new immigration system and, and what the benefits might might be too and, and whether you think that our numbers should should really prompt the government to change course and, and try and liberalise the current system further. So I think the costs of the system are that, you know, you are taking sectors which had done relatively well out of free movement. They had access to flexible you know, workers who in general were flexible uh, and, and wanted to work in these the sectors where it has been quite difficult to uh, to get workers from the domestic workforce. And that allowed those sectors to grow, expand and to be successful. And clearly, 
as we know from, uh, um, from from what business leaders said, that is now a problem. There are shortages of workers in accommodation, hospitality, you know, so restaurants and hotels in particular, and then also, as as John said, in transportation, logistics, and so on. And those shortages impose real costs in the economy in the short term. Jobs don't get done. Costs rise those costs get passed on to all of us in the form of inflation. And in the longer run, those businesses will have to adjust. And that adjustment will come in the form of higher wages. That's good for the workers, but in the absence of higher productivity, that will get passed on to the rest of the economy in terms of higher inflation. So it won't lead to higher real wages overall, but simply to higher nominal wages and then higher price level. But it may also lead, and probably already has in some cases, to businesses closing and to reduced output. And that's the response that you would expect. On the positive side in those sectors, maybe, uh, and this was the hope of some of those who put in the system, you will see higher productivity or greater investment in the recruitment and training of, of resident workers. Workers. There's little evidence of that so far, but uh, but to be fair, it's early days yet, so maybe some will come along. And then, of course, there's the positive side that comes from the liberalization on the, the higher skilled routes, where some sectors may find it much easier to re- recruit people. And those sectors are likely to be higher paid, higher productivity ones, finance, business sectors, and so on. And finally, there's the health service, where I think there are trade-offs here, but almost certainly in the short r- run, you know, without access to these very large inflows of people coming to work in the health and care sector, things would be even worse, if you can believe that. And they already were. They're pretty bad already, as we all know. And we won't go into to that. That's a subject for a whole nother discussion. But things would be even worse if, if there weren't these very substantial uh, flows of people coming from, in particular, from, from India, the Philippines, Nigeria, and, and, and so on. I mean, so in, in terms of the government changing course, I mean, my as, a, as an economic liberal, my view is that, and I, I suspect this is your view too, that mm-hmm. moving from a system of free movement, where essentially decisions about employment are taken by employers, rather than governments. So one, even if we're moving to a comparatively liberal system where the government isn't interfering too much, particularly for people at medium to higher skill levels, even if we're doing that, then we are essentially throwing some grit into the wheels of the labour market. And even if a lot of people who came under free movement were employed in less skilled sectors of the economy, as you say, probably the biggest effect of that was to allow output to expand in those sectors. There may have been some impacts on wages for Brits who are working in those sectors, possibly. But in a lot of cases, it's been quite hard to get Brits to do this work. And so, you know, if we end up with a kind of net loss of workers in the less skilled sectors, aren't we really talking about, in the medium term, there being a significant cost to the UK economy, because a lot of this output, which we could have had, and, you know, we could have enjoyed cheaper fruit, or um, it's easier to get your coffee, you know, all of this sounds quite trivial, but add it all up across the economy. And you have a kind of fairly large welfare loss into the medium term. I mean, I think there's a lot to that. And and as you know, I mean, I would certainly have the view that free movement was a good thing for the UK economy, that the the quite substantial benefits of having this relatively liberal market-driven migration system um, outweighed the costs. However, I have sort of two views, and, and this is partly political as well as economic, which is that free movement was part of the single market, and the Europeans are sort of right on that one. Um, and it's not really separable. And if 
you're going to Brexit, <laughs> if you're going to leave the single market, and anyway, if you if if you take the view that Brexit means leaving leaving the single market, which is is where we are, then there are good reasons, both economically and politically, for saying in that case we should have a uh, a system that does treat people equally, regardless of where where they're coming from. I did not have much sympathy with. Brexiteers who said, oh, free movement is inherently racist because if Bartos is white Europeans over non-white the rest of the world. On the other hand, uh, I think that argument has a lot more force if you say, well, we're not a member of the European Union, but we're going to prioritize white European Union mm-hmm. citizens over non-white Indians or Bangladeshis or whatever. That seems to me to be much harder to justify. And if you're going to have a non-discriminatory system, then you know, assuming we are not going to have open borders, and that's a sort of separate argument, but it's not within the politically feasible set in any case, then you need a system that uh, that selects people. In other words, there always will be controls and grits in the will. And if you're going to do that, then selecting on the basis of skill and salary threshold is closer to a market test and a, a sort of non something that, that has less of the central planning around it than doing you know what the Australians do, for example, which is is much more based on quite detailed assessments of sector sector and occupational needs. So this is sort of long wind of say what I worry about in the sort of quite you know business leaders coming along and saying this system isn't working for us. We have to have a a new scheme for people to come and work in the hospitality sector. We have to have a new scheme for people to come and work in the transportation or logistics sector or whatever. Is that you end up with a profusion of schemes driven by negotiations between individual sectors and people in the home office or department from business. Um, And that seems to me to end up being very messy, not market driven at all, quite subject to who shouts the loudest and to the lobbying. And actually, we are better off given that we are that free movement is gone in taking what is a relatively liberal and sort of reasonably transparent scheme and seeing how it works out, letting it bed in, letting employers and businesses businesses and, and individuals adjust to it and, and seeing whether we can make it work. And yes, there will be costs. There's no doubt around that. But that seems to me to be sort of, of, of where we are. Yeah, I think all of those points are very well made. I mean, what one thing that I would just add is that, as you said at the very beginning, then there has been even more of a liberalisation in health and social care visas, simply because, you know, the NHS is in crisis, desperately need more workers. And if you look at the number of visas that have been issued by sector, then just, you know, the most of the rise, maybe not most, but a big portion of the rise is in health and social care. So, but you can imagine that there might be other, well, I can think of a sector where labour demand is going to be very, very big over the next 10 years and that's construction because you know because we have to do a huge make a huge effort on retrofitting houses and insulating them and so forth and so there's I completely take your point about there needing to be a system which isn't determined by lobbying but there are also sectoral policy goals which might make it sensible to have more flexibility in certain sectors don't you think? I mean, I think that's a hard one. I mean, you know, medium and high skilled construction workers certainly are paid well over the the threshold and probably meet the skill threshold for most of the people we're talking about. So I would say that actually the government's 
rather than trying to negotiate with the construction sector and saying, well, precisely this job is, is within and there should be this quota, I would say the priority should be making the existing system work. The visa fees are high. There still is quite a lot of bureaucracy in the system and certainly lots of SMEs. And I think this, this is something where you could make do some useful things. Uh, Kings, of course, where I work, had to navigate the system for non-EU citizens for, for decades, both for students and for staff. So we have lots of people who know their way around the home office procedures. If you're a small company in Bradford or whatever that retrofits homes and you need a couple of people, you're obviously not in that situation. But it seems to me the way is not to have some quota system for the construction sector, it's for the government to work and the home office to work out, well, how do we actually make it possible for that firm to make use of this system with a minimum of bureaucracy and a minimum of cost? And one way that that could happen would be to reduce the cost of visas. It could be to reduce or preferably eliminate the immigration healthcare surcharge, which is essentially just a tax on, on visa holders, right? I mean... Yeah. So, so you could you could have a system which is still largely driven by skill level, but you aren't necessarily putting all of these prices essentially for getting a visa or reduce the prices in order to be able to bring more people in if that's what you decide you need. That's right. And um, in reducing the what's effectively a, a cost, just not a charge in, in terms of having to register to be a sponsor and whatever the procedures and, and so on that you have to go through in order to, to do that. Okay. Wonderful. Well, thanks ever so much, Jonathan. Uh, That was really interesting. And thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time at the CR podcast. And just a reminder to give us five stars when reviewing us on your podcast provider, please, because it helps other people find us. So thanks, Jonathan. Thank you. And bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.